This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 293rd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the funniest actors and also one of the most talented directors in Hollywood, and he has been for some 30 years, Ben Stiller. The 53-year-old son of Jerry Stiller and Ann Mira, one of the great comedy teams of all time, got his first gigs as a performer, but always aspired to be a director. The Ben Stiller Show, a half-hour variety sketch program that had a couple of incarnations in the late 80s and early 90s, was short-lived, but allowed him the chance to do both, as well as writing, for which he received an Emmy in 1993, and then a host of other opportunities. He directed and played supporting parts in 1994's Reality Bites, an indie sensation, and in 1996's The Cable Guy, a big-budget flop. In 1996, he also played a small part in Happy Gilmore opposite Adam Sandler and a big part in David O. Russell's Flirting with Disaster. And then he was cast with great reluctance on the part of 20th Century Fox as the lead of the movie that made him a star, The Farrelly Brothers' There's Something About Mary, which came out in 1998 and became a global sensation. Ever since, Stiller has had conflicted feelings about his career. He is best known and most often wanted for broad comedies, having starred in many, including Meet the Parents in 2000, Zoolander in 2001, Along Came Polly in 2004, Dodgeball, A True Underdog Story, also in 2004, Starsky and Hutch, also in 2004, Tropic Thunder in 2008, and Tower Heist in 2011, plus a couple of kid-friendly franchises, which originated with Madagascar in 2005 and Night at the Museum in 2006. But he doesn't like being limited to only that sort of a part. Indeed, some of his favorite roles have actually been quite different, coming in Wes Anderson's The Royal Tenenbaums in 2001 and Noah Baumbach's Greenberg in 2010, While We're Young in 2014, and the Meyerowitz stories, New and Selected, in 2017. There actually seems to be a part of him that would rather direct full-time than act at all. Sometimes, in order to get the chance to direct, he has had to also agree to star in a film. That was the case with Zoolander, Tropic Thunder, and 2013's The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. But it was my impression that he has never been more creatively satisfied than he was making Escape at Danamora, a limited series on Showtime that rolled out last November and December. He directed all seven installments of the show, totaling eight hours, leaving the on-camera duties entirely to Benicio Del Toro and Paul Dano, who play prison inmates, and Patricia Arquette, who plays the prison guard who helps them try to escape. Based on a true story, the series is Emmy-nominated, as are all of its aforementioned stars and Stiller, for both producing and directing. Stiller and I discussed all of the above, plus much more, over the course of an interview at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. 
Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you. Thanks. We always begin by asking our guests where they were born and raised and what their parents did for a living. I think people may be more familiar with your parents than most of our guests. But <laughs> I was born in New York City, and my parents were actors. And had a comedy team, Stiller and Mira, and both worked separately also. And yeah, so I kind of grew up around all this. And talk about, if you can, just having parents who are in the business to the extent that they were. I mean, these were very well-known people in prepping for this. I read as much as I can find, and they're, you know, you've had a, a few decades in this business, so people have interviewed you a lot. And it's been interesting to, you know, my sense was that when they were around, it was great, but they were often, because of work, not around. And I would read that there was this woman, I think a Jamaican lady, Hazel, who was as much a parent in some <laughs> ways as they were. So just like, you know, the good and the bad sides of having parents that are in the business like they were. Yes. Hazel Hugh was an angel. She took care of my sister and I and also had seven children of her own. Wow. And yeah, I mean, it was a life of having to travel a lot. You know, when my parents were working, they were committed to living in New York but a lot of the work was elsewhere, and especially coming out to L.A. So we used to love to come out here with them. But, you know, during the school year or whatever, we couldn't do it. And they had to just go do their thing. And it was the 70s. You know, I think it was a different time. Yeah. And they had to, uh, you know, because their act was what they did. So they had to be working together mm -hmm. all the time. And they never went away for too long. It wasn't like they go away on location doing a movie for three or four months or right. something like that. It was more like one or two week trips or, you know, and when we could go with them, we would. But, you know, that was just kind of the way it was. It was, and it was yeah. you and an older sister? Yeah, my sister Amy and yeah. I. But we were really connected to what our parents were doing. I mean, we, I was always interested in it. I was always wanting to be around the set and watch, you know, how they did it. And They roped uh, you into something pretty early on, right? Like you were eight or nine, I think, on TV for the first time? Uh, well, I mean, there were a number of <laughs> times we were roped into things. Um, it's funny, you know, I actually just started gathering up a lot of the material of my folks to maybe do some sort of a project about them. So I've been spending a lot of time looking at the shows mm -hmm. and commercials and appearances they did. And, you know, they did shows like the Mike Douglas show mm -hmm. a lot. And that's one that we were roped into uh, <laughs> coming out and playing violin because we'd taken violin lessons right. for about six months and so <laughs> they felt we were ready for a national audience uh, are but, you, you know, oh i'm sorry go no ahead. no it was i mean we were always excited and, and into it you know it was fun to be a part of what they were doing but looking back on it it's you know i wonder you know what must have felt like for my parents <laughs> actually watching us because i look at their reaction during right. it and they're you know as any parent they're right. just sort of you know trying to sort of project themselves into us. <laughs> well, so when your parents are both very funny people, does that make you more or less inclined to display your own sense of humor? And do you think a sense of humor is a genetic gift or is it something like, were you a funny kid, basically? I think I was uh, like kind of a crazy kid in terms of and again, looking back at home movies or cassette recordings that my sister and I would make of doing crazy characters and things or acting out Jesus Christ Superstar in the living room or <laughs> doing fake Shakespeare plays. I think we were, we had that thing inside of us where, and I see it with my kids too, where, you know, it's just kind of like that thing of just <laughs> wanting to put something out there. And uh, I don't know if I was funny per se. I think, I know that I really loved movies and 
the idea of making movies from a young age and made Super 8 movies and read all the behind the scenes books or like the making of Jaws uh-huh. or I had a, a subscription to American Cinematographer probably since I was like 12 or so. And So even then it was at least as much about making things as acting in them. It was all sort of, it was all part of the yeah. same thing. You know, it was, I mean, we used to do little improvs with my parents. My sister and I would pretend we were in an acting class and our dad was this mean acting teacher. <laughs> <laughs> and he, I mean, he had fun doing it too. And, and I don't remember doing it with my mom as much, but you know, it was just kind of like part of, you know, that's who my parents were and my my, my dad still is. He's incredibly naturally funny. Mm. And I, I feel like as a kid, I was sort of trying to find my own way. And so I was kind of, you know, looking at movies and more serious movies and thinking that's what I'm going to do. And then eventually I came back to comedy because yeah. I think it is part of genetically just probably part of my makeup. <laughs> well, so eventually you went off for a little while, at least to UCLA's film school, but Prior to that, I read that you had, as you just referenced, you'd been doing some stuff with a Super 8 camera that you'd gotten as a gift from your dad. You had been acting in a children's theater. You had a few even small professional gigs like Guiding Light and stuff like that. And then I also, I know there was a high school band. So there's a lot of stuff going on. But one thing that caught my eye was that you were opening for a comedian even before college. What was that about? Like, we're sort of, who's... Jaden Wong or Jaden? What's that about? Oh my God, I don't know. <laughs> that's I, that's one I've never heard You've before. Ne- <laughs> I swear, Jaden Wong. Well, that was it was in like the Playboy interview you did in like nineteen. What do I say there? Well, if it's if, if you don't know, then it doesn't matter. But it's I not, said it. I said it. I guess, but you don't remember opening for somebody like in some some comedic sketch type thing prior to college. Well, prior to college, no, not that I remember, okay. but I'm very curious. What, <laughs> well, what, that's funny. What well, I'm forgetting in my life. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll we'll leave it. But I mean, um, you obviously were. I mean, I, I, what I did was after school, after my brief, very brief stint at yeah. uh, UCLA, I came back and was trying to figure out how to have a career, what to do, and I met a friend of mine, Jeff Kahn, who. I met in Chicago because I was doing, I had a small part in this movie called Next of Kin with Patrick Swayze. Patrick Swayze starred in it and I had a little part, (laughs) (laughs) like five scenes and got killed about 20 minutes into it. But I was there for the whole shoot and so I had this time in Chicago and I had done a movie called Hot Pursuit with John Cusack and he agreed to be in a a short that I was making. So through making this short, I met Jeff Kahn who was doing comedy in Chicago and then we moved in together in New York and started doing kind of an act together that we would do at this place called the China Club on like Monday nights because we knew the guy who ran it. Mm-hmm. And we never really like got up at clubs, like comedy clubs. But from that, we were able to get a little special for MTV because it was right when MTV was starting to do programming. Now, that was chronologically, though. What, what After college, yeah. After college. But, I mean, it seems like the first real thing after leaving college was Broadway. Yeah, well, that was right. Yeah, that before that, I had gotten so, a part. It was actually off Broadway at Lincoln Center, okay. House of Blue Leaves. That then yes. that was a production that moved to Broadway. Eventually. Oh, so you were with it that whole. Yeah, progression. I stayed with it. Yeah, and I, so here you're like 20 years old. Actually, I, it was funny because I hadn't seen it, but I just came up last week because I was with Patricia Clarkson, who I guess was 
a replacement in that same show. But the thing that is interesting here, so you leave UCLA, you're saying there's these auditions and some small film roles even before House of... Yeah, I mean, I had been auditioning for probably about three years and consistently not getting jobs. (laughs) Can (laughs) you confirm, was Platoon one of those? Platoon was one. I had a meeting with Oliver Stone, I remember... Very clearly, he looked at my 8x10, and he looked up, and he goes, yeah, you're cute. And that, was, <laughs> that, was, <laughs> and that might have come back around many years later with... Uh, I think he's the only person who ever said, you're cute. You're cute. <laughs> <laughs> but Tropic Thunder, in a way, yeah, emanates well, from... I mean, I love... Platoon is one of my favorite movies, yeah. and, and then at that time, every actor my age was going in for all of these... Vietnam films, right. basically. So it was an idea that I had and then sort of gestated for a while. Yeah. Well, we'll come back okay. to that. Um, yeah. But the thing that I guess really started the idea of you being a filmmaker in a way that other people acknowledged was during this Broadway show, what were you doing when you weren't on stage? Right. So I had a, a small part in the play. I had a monologue at the beginning of the second act, and uh, so I had a lot of time off stage and became friends with John Mahoney, who was the lead, and he won a Tony for that performance. He's an amazing person and actor. And he let me do this sort of pseudo documentary about him called A Portrait of the Artist as an Old Man, which was basically, he was, because he was the nicest guy in mm-hmm. the world and everybody loved him and he was just so generous. So he decided to play the, the meanest, most self-involved <laughs> backstage persona. It was sort of just the sort of antithesis of who he was. And so I did it with a video camera backstage and everybody in the cast participated in interviews about him and how horrible he was to them. And, <laughs> and then I edited it with two VHS machines I had. So, you know, back then, if you wanted to edit VHS and you didn't have uh, an editing system, you just like record one piece off of one tape player and then put the other tape in and then record another piece off it. And then I showed it at a party. We had a cast party and it got laughs. And I remember having that feeling of, oh, my God, this is something that, you know, this feels good. This is fun Mm -hmm. and people are enjoying this and I love doing it. So that was probably the first time I really thought I could do this something I would do all the time. I guess another thing that came about as a result of House Blue Leaves was Mr. Spielberg saw you. So that's how you end up in Empire of the Sun? Yeah, it was pretty amazing because he was my favorite filmmaker <laughs> as a kid. Yeah, from reading what you were just saying about yeah, Jaws. Yeah. yeah, and he came to the show and he was casting Empire of the Sun and I got a call to meet him, to go meet him. And to meet about playing this part, this character of Dainty, in, which was a small part in the book. And so I read the book and then had a meeting with him at Amblin in L.A., which was just, you know, I was terrified. And he sat and talked to me for about 20 minutes and said, uh, yeah, you know, uh, I think, you, you know, I think you might be right for this. Um, you think you could lose a little weight maybe because, you know, the prisoners of war. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I could do that. <laughs> Whatever you want. Yeah, right. um, and then I left and I was like, all right, well, I guess an audition is going to happen or there's no audition. He called up the agent and said, yeah, we want him. Wow. Which blew my mind and, you know, gives an actor, a young actor, so much confidence that a director will hire you without an audition. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went and lost about 35 pounds. <laughs> oh my God. I showed up on the set and I said hi to him in Spain. We were in Spain and, uh, <laughs> And he looked at me and said, oh, my God, are you okay? (laughs) 
what happened? I said, you said to lose weight. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, and of course, we were there in Spain for like two and a half months, and they had amazing craft service. But by the time the <laughs> shoot was over, all of it the all prisoners had, had gained their weight back. <laughs> Is it true that he allowed you to sort of shadow him as a director? Yeah, he did. I mean, he was very, very generous in, in allowing, I think, anybody who's interested in filmmaking to kind of have that you know, the feeling they come up and ask him questions and he would tell stories about making, you know, if you ask a Jaws question, which was amazing. And then I had done this little short that was a takeoff on the color of money with my friend Ralph Howard and I and Steve Clayman. And so we made this short and I showed it to him and he looked at it and he, and he gave me some feedback on it and, uh, which was amazing. And wow. then, yeah. And then I just kind of, yeah, watched as much as I could and, I had the most horrifying moment in my career ever where I actually yelled cut during a shot <laughs> because there was a long steady cam shot that we were at the end of uh, that started on Christian Bale coming yeah. through this barracks and it got to John Malkovich and I was standing next to him and I had one line because I only had like three lines in the whole movie <laughs> and I screwed up my one line and I went, oh man, I'm sorry, cut, <laughs> which is, there was silence yeah. and then I heard from like way off where the monitors were, what? <laughs> What'd you say? And I was like, I'm sorry, I screwed up. I said cut. He's like, you never yell cut. <laughs> now, if I had ever imagined that I would say cut on a Steven Spielberg, I mean, that just shows you how nervous I was. Oh, my God. Um, well, the other film that you just mentioned you made, The Hustler of Money, that also led to something. So this stuff that you're basically doing on your own time just to, I guess, be creative and explore your interests, those projects were resulting in real things in this case how does Lauren Michaels find out about that yeah well I mean I was making these little shorts just because when you're not working that's you're trying to figure out a way to self-generate to kind of to do something to you know be creative and and try to move forward and I'd made that short with the money that I made in the play the little money I made in the play but it was at the time enough to make a 16 millimeter film so now we graduated to <laughs> a 16 millimeter flatbed editing right. machine and there was a great documentary filmmaker who lived in my building named Dick Young who allowed us to use his flatbed machine to cut it and John Lovitz had come to see the play House of Blue Leaves and I reached out to him and asked him if he could bring the tape to Saturday Night Live and he literally met me in the lobby of 30 Rock and took it upstairs. And Well, the reason I think it's important to point out, because like SNL viewers of the last maybe few years would not necessarily know about Albert Brooks and what he had originally been doing on the early SNL stuff where there were short film elements. Now, I guess it's sort of come back with like Dick in a Box and stuff. But the idea that you wanted it to go to SNL is because you wanted to essentially walk in the footsteps of Albert Brooks, right? Yeah, he was my filmmaking hero, and you know that's how he started, and that's what I felt I could do. And eventually, I got on SNL, but as a featured player, and they weren't making shorts at that point like that. So uh, that was uh, what I'd hoped I would be able to do. And so your SNL experience then was a little frustrating because you weren't being able to do what you wanted to do there, as you say. So. Well, I felt like I just wasn't that good at it. I've never been great at being a live performer. It's always made me nervous. I love doing takes and mm -hmm. having a chance to do it over and over again. And so I tried. But then at the same time, there was this opportunity from the thing I've been doing with Jeff Kahn to do an MTV show where we could do it that way. And so I made that choice. And so that you knew when you were leaving SNL after whatever it was, just a 
few weeks, right? That that <laughs> like six weeks. Six weeks. <laughs> Has anyone else ever elected to leave SNL? That it, it, I don't think it was a brilliant move. <laughs> <on my part. laughs> it was very complicated at the time because yeah. there was that MTV opportunity. I had gotten like little parts, like like next of kin mm-hmm. and movies, and I was really trying to figure out how to go forward. And I thought that that I would do better in that arena but um i don't think anybody did and you know for years it was you know i regretted it too because it was a chance to be a part of that but i think instinctually i knew that i was never going to be great like will ferrell Mm -hmm. or someone like that who's just brilliant at at doing snl so can you connect the dots from leaving snl to do the show at mtv to how that show i guess with the same name the ben stiller show evolves very very creative well (laughs) (laughs) Well, outside the box yes uh but mtv is basically on the basis of your short film saying we want you to do a show of short films essentially so it was there for a short while then it goes to fox for a short while and right it was a two or three year process that that happened mm-hmm. and it was a transitional time at MTV where they were just starting to do original programming yeah. which some they had never done that before they just shown videos and so what they first started doing was showing videos within shows that had some sort of a framework where so it would be half videos and half show mm-hmm. and they did this thing called it's your hour where they'd let somebody do their own thing so they gave Jeff and I that hour and we came up with the idea for a half hour show that was really only like 12 minutes probably of sketches that would sort of bookend videos and somehow try to work the videos into the mm-hmm. sketches which was a little awkward and clumsy but it was a chance to do a show right so it was kind of a behind the scenes of the ben stiller show was the idea of the show and we did i think 12 or 13 episodes of it and from that the fox network uh, they saw it and chris albrecht at hbo productions started to develop it with us and we tried for it took a couple of years and eventually it got to a point where we got were able to make a pilot for fox and at that point i had met judd apatow i was gonna just ask so that so he was not nothing to do with mtv one but in between mtv and fox you guys meet and say you know we have a similar vision yeah we were developing this show with hbo for Fox, and it was, we were sort of hitting a brick wall with it. And I met Judd out here because I was starting to spend more time out here, and he was doing stand up. And I'm pretty sure we met online at an Elvis Costello unplugged <laughs> taping, and we just connected. And, you know, he was from New York, I was from New York, and I said, I'm trying to get this show going, and, and maybe you could get involved. And because I, I don't know why I thought that, I didn't even know him. Right. It was like a <laughs> but he short had that time sense after. That yeah. He like, knew what he was doing. <laughs> and from that, we were able to get the pilot picked up at Fox, which it took, a, I think, three tries on the pilot in terms of oh. how we presented the show. And so the writers included you, Judd, David Cross, Bob Odenkirk. Cast is you, Odenkirk, Andy Dick, Janine Garofalo, who you would work with several more times, Reality Bites and all sorts of stuff. This show, as you say, it didn't last long, but it has truly like a cult-like following. And I wonder if you can pinpoint what made it unique, why people connect so much with it. I know there's very funny stuff, sort of impersonating Tony Robbins and Tom Cruise and all kinds of stuff. But, you know, Judd has said... Quote, people talk about improv in my movies, but it all comes from me watching Ben work on that show, close quote. What was it that made that show special? I don't know, honestly, but I think maybe it was the freedom that we had because there was really 
nothing on the line for us other than we had an opportunity to do a show. And it was at a time when Fox was just starting up. So it didn't feel like we were under any sort of microscope. We just and we and I think it's that thing of also youth where you don't have a sense of what you can't do. And then it was, you know, kind of organic too. It was, it was sort of just like, oh, you know, Judd would be great and Janine's really funny because I'd see Janine do stand up and I met Andy Dick when I was in Chicago uh, around the same time I met Jeff Kahn and, you know, he just seemed like it was just sort of like calling up people we knew and said, hey, we're, you know, we're trying to do this show and do you want to be a part of it? And David Cross came out because he was a friend of Janine's and she said, oh, I know this really funny guy, David, who's in Boston and... So, you know, we um, we just were and, and then we just kind of thought, let's just do what's funny. And then very early on, there were discussions with the network. The network had no idea what we were up to. We barely knew what we were up to. <laughs> and I remember Judd being very good at going head to head with the network early on, you know, 26 years right, old, right. just like, you know, going at it and uh, <laughs> protecting the show. And we just were having fun. I mean, it was a really short period of time, too. Well, so were you surprised when it was canceled after you know relatively short time and then also were you surprised when post cancellation you guys win a writing Emmy it must have been bittersweet yeah it was you know we were so happy to be on the air by the time we got on the air that I really don't feel that it wasn't like a sad thing when we got canceled I think we were surprised that we'd even been on the air that long <laughs> we were up against 60 minutes I mean right, it was right. you know we were just happy to be there and so when it was over, it was. I also remember feeling really at the edge of our limit in terms of actually producing the show, because we had to keep on generating yeah. sketches. And I remember like the ratio of sketches that we would throw out, or we'd make a sketch and go, you know what, that's not really good enough. <laughs> was starting to get higher and right. higher. So there was maybe a little bit of relief. Right. And then the Emmy was totally out of the blue. So that was the most surprising thing of all. Right. For sure. So I guess the one immediate thing that became possible after that show went away is that now you get an opportunity to direct a feature film for the first time with Reality Bites, which just to contextualize, it premiered at Sundance just a few years after Slacker. And and when the New York Times reviewed Reality Bites, they wrote, quote, this film is slacker without the slackness, intentionally commercial and breezily entertaining, close quote. It's you also acting in a film you've directed for the first time, of course, and it's basically like a, a yuppie TV exec who loses Winona Ryder to Ethan Hawke, if I remember all the... Yes. So what's it like having to both act and direct simultaneously? I got the sense that you've done it a few times, but you don't particularly enjoy doing both at the same time. Yeah, I've never felt like it's the easiest thing to do or the best way to make a movie, but it was kind of from the beginning the way that really from the beginning, like even those short films that, you know, what I was doing and I guess, you know, Albert Brooks did it too. And yeah. I was like, oh, well, he, he does it. But he also, I think, had a very clear vision as a writer too. And I think I was more interested in directing separately. And eventually that's really where I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. But the acting and directing was kind of just from the beginning part of, you know, doing it on the show, also on the Fox show. You know, it was never really that economical. Uh, you can really be two places at once. It was, but I, I guess I never really questioned it because I was doing it from yeah. the beginning. The next wave of stuff after Reality Bites, which very well received, now you get to a bunch of things that all hit in 96, so I'm sure we're in the works in 95 as well. But let's just quickly hit them one by one where people will remember... Certainly, me and my 
friends all grew up with, Happy Gilmore. You were this mean nursing home orderly. And you said something in one of these interviews that I want to quote back to you. Quote, I find it easy to amuse myself with a certain sort of cynical dark humor that tends toward the meaner side, like my character in Happy Gilmore. Those kinds of characters come easily to me. I'm just not a naturally cheery person, close quote. (laughs) So (laughs) I want to ask you about that because in some ways, you know, what people may be surprised to hear, and and correct me if this is wrong, but my strong (laughs) sense from this is like the stuff like where you've had a number of roles where sort of the oblivious schmo, if we can say, right? That kind of humor, it sounds like even though it's been associated with you quite a bit with some of the more prominent roles, you don't especially love, but the darker stuff like a Happy Gilmore character is what's more natural to you. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that I somehow got into being a comedic actor (laughs) which I really have enjoyed over the years, but I think I really always, since I was a kid, thought, oh, I'm going to be a director. Mm -hmm. And comedically, my sensibility was always a little bit more, I think, I don't know, you know, maybe in that interview, which it sounds like I was (laughs) very dark and intense (laughs) at that time, I think it was more, my sense of humor was more sort of, I guess, not as much that mainstream kind of thing. But you know, that being said, you know, as an audience, I guess I maybe gravitated more towards the, the other thing, but not necessarily dark and, mm-hmm. and mean, but like a little more sort of, I guess, less, uh, less mainstream. Like for SCTV was yeah. my favorite show. Yeah. And, you know, that was like, there was so much weird inside show business humor mm-hmm. too, that for some reason they were doing, even though they were in Canada and were not even connected <laughs> with it, but they got it brilliantly. Right. So, I mean, that kind of thing was always interesting to me or even just weirder stuff too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as I, I did these other kinds of comedies, I was sort of trying to figure out my own identity, yeah. too, during that, which I'm still trying to figure out, by the way. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. Another quote was, quote, the movie I did before There's Something About Mary was more breakthrough for me, figuring out as an actor how to work in a comedy, close quote. And that movie was Flirting with Disaster for David O. Russell, also in 1996. You're playing this guy, new father on a quest to find his biological parents. First time working with Patricia Arquette, I think we can know because that'll come back around. Yeah. But why was that more of a revelation even than Something About Mary would be two years later? Uh it's a good question. I mean, I think they're just different types of humor. I mean, I'm amazed because I'll look back at there's something about Mary, and recently I've seen it on a couple of times, and like I'll watch it for a second, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is always a weird and sort of dicey <laughs> thing to do. But I will laugh at it. I think it's a really funny movie, and not the stuff I'm doing necessarily, but just the whole movie mm-hmm. and the sensibility and. Matt Dillon and, and Cameron, they're just they're so good in it. And there are scenes that I'm in that I laugh at, too. And it's a very unique sensibility. And what David O. Russell is doing is also a unique sensibility. I think at the time, I somehow probably felt like I understood David's sensibility more. But as an actor, I just sort of, and there's something about Mary, I was sort of like just, I read, the, I remember reading the script and laughing out loud and thinking this movie is either going to be like one of the funniest movies ever or it'll be, you know, horrific. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it was luckily, you know, I think it's the, the um, yes, definitely. former. Definitely. Uh, but it wasn't something I understood. I kind of had to, to go, okay, you guys really think this is going right. to be, people are going to buy this? Right. I mean, I have so many logic questions right. I would ask Peter and Bobby. Right. But like in this scene, how are people, like I, I won't go into the details, but some of those dicier scenes, right. I'd be like, really, people are going to believe this? And, <laughs> and they were like, yeah, it's funny. It's funny. And right. they were right. And with David, I think his humor came out of a, 
a different place that was more reality-based, but, you know, and funny in its own way, but both, in retrospect, I look back and I'm, you know, happy to be a part of both movies. And people talk about, in subsequent David O. Russell movies, that just a unique directorial approach where, I don't know how he cuts it all together, but I guess that essentially he's like shouting directions while you're in the middle of a scene and then he'll cut that out or whatever. Was it even back then like that? Yeah, I think that's part of just how he works. And that's the only movie we did together. But I remember it being sort of a little bit chaotic sometimes. But also the movie kind of was like this crazy chaotic energy. You know, that was part of it. So I'm sure that was where he was coming from in terms of how he wanted to get the energy of the set going. And, you know, every directing is such a subjective thing that sometimes as an actor, you don't necessarily know why the director is doing something or where they're coming from. And you don't need to know. You just have to figure out how you fit into that. And so that's just part of his method and how he makes it happen. Yeah. Flirting with Disaster came out in March of 96. In June of 96, the public got to see your second directorial effort, The Cable Guy. Jim Carrey is starring in it as a guy whose brain is sort of fried by TV. And I wonder what you – it seems like from, from things I read, you'd originally turned it down. Then you reconsidered. I wonder what changed. Like, Well, what I remember from that is, I mean, I think Chris Farley was going to do the movie. And then Chris ended up not doing it. And Judd is the guy who called me up and asked me to direct it. And so Judd and uh, Jim offered it to me. And I'm thankful because making that movie was one of the best experiences I've ever had. Yeah. Why was that? Because... We got to do what we wanted to do, and Jim's a genius, and being able to just experience his process and to sort of connect with him on that. And Judd and I had this idea of sort of the tone of the movie. And again, like the youthful sort of you don't know what you can't do and (laughs) what the consequences might be. All of that was, you know, at a time when Jim had so much leverage that he could really just, you know, do whatever he wanted to do and, and we could take these chances with the movie. So that's why I'm grateful for the experience and that mm-hmm. Judd called me up about it and was, uh, you know, obviously the reception <laughs> was not quite as, you know, positive. But Well, but let me ask you, do you think, so Jim's coming off at that point, coming off of Dumb and Dumber and Liar Liar and hit after hit after hit, he becomes, for this movie, the first guy to get paid $20 million for a movie. Do you think that just put a target on the movie? Do you think that the reactions weren't even... Like, if somebody had just gone in blind, not knowing any of the the behind-the-scenes, like, that that was his paycheck or anything else, it would have been received a little more generously? Well, there definitely was, I think, a spotlight on the movie from that. And also, I think we were making a movie that, in this day and age, would never, ever be a summer film, that, no. and probably then should not have been a summer movie. Um, well, the marketing was a little off. Yeah, too. but I think it was that they were getting this thing that we were making, the studio, and they had always envisioned it as a summer Jim Carrey movie coming off of those you know big hits, and Jim and Judd and I had this other idea for it, and so they went ahead and just marketed what they had because they had no other choice really. And it was probably a huge mistake to put it out like that in the summer. You know, that's what happened with it. But, uh, yeah, it was again, you know, one of those, I think in 1996, it was the the movie landscape was so different too, that, uh, I think the context of it did matter, but at the same time, the movie was always going to be what it was too. Another positive takeaway from that 
project, I think, was that that was that the first time you crossed paths with Owen Wilson. Yeah. And you had seen him, I guess, in Bottle Rocket. You start working here. Now, 12 movies later or something, what was it that made you want to work with this guy, and why have you headed off to the extent that you did? Well, I remember seeing him come into audition for Cable Guy, and at that time, Bottle Rocket hadn't come out yet, They'd, but they had made a short. There was a black-and-white short that Wes made that became the feature of Bottle mm-hmm. Rocket, and they were in process, I think, of editing Bottle Rocket at the time, or I think it was about to come out. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking, this guy is so funny. He's just so unique and weird, <laughs> and his audition wasn't great, but we'd seen the Bottle Rocket short, and I remember having this conversation with Judd where I was like, I don't know, this Owen guy is really funny, but I don't know, the audition's like, I'm not so sure. <laughs> and Judd's like, you gotta cast that guy, which is why Judd's Judd. Right. And I shot the scene with him, he has this date scene with Leslie Mann, and literally I felt like I was directing a different movie. I was, because I was directing like an Owen Wilson movie, <laughs> even though nobody knew who Owen Wilson was. And so and then I went to see Bottle Rocket, I remember, as we were still shooting Cable Guy. And I remember sitting in the theater and just laughing, like from five minutes in, just laughing all the way through and thinking, this guy is just so unique. And so, uh, I don't know, just something about him made me laugh. And then from then on, we, yeah, we made a lot of movies in a short period of time together. As a result of the Cable Guy not going over as well as you guys probably would have hoped, did you feel like you were sort of in director's jail? Like, was it where you felt like you laid low for a while as a director. I know that maybe this contradicts that because there it would have been around that same time that I think you were offered and declined to do Goodwill Hunting. But <laughs> but uh, I, I think it was sort of a period where you weren't getting too many directing offers. Well, this was another, I think, brilliant choice in the leaving Saturday Night Live mode Yeah, <laughs> where I was sent a script called Goodwill Hunting. And the only catch was that the two guys who wrote it were attached to it. <laughs> I was like, look, I'm a director. I get to choose who's in my cast, right. okay? Don't tell me. Yeah. <laughs> Another good one, but right. um, but it's just show business when you know, if you do something that's a hit, people call you up. If you do something that's a bomb, they don't. Uh, it's it's really just, you know, it basically never changes. So I had time, yeah, to sort of figure out what I was gonna do next. And luckily I had this sort of little mini acting career going too, you know? So I was kind of trying to figure out what to do and then working on a, I ended up writing a script for What Makes Sammy Run with mm-hmm. Jerry Stahl because I'd met him when we met on Permanent Midnight, which is the movie I ended up doing. Bud Schulberg as well, yeah, right? Yeah, so I got was, to spend some time with Bud yeah. and, yeah. It's interesting that in Hollywood terms, when your stock may have been lowest is when along comes something about Mary. Yeah, right? yeah. And the fact that it even did come about at a time when you were not in any way associated with broader comedy, right? You had not done anything quite like something about Mary in that same tone. Was uh, I th- it? I think the Farrelly's had seen Flirting with Disaster, and that was what made them think that I could possibly do their movie. I mean, I know you had been a fan of some of their stuff, but they reached out to you and said, we want you for this guy, Ted. Yeah, I think my agent... Nick Stevens had something to do with yeah, it. Hopefully. I think he called him and said, hey, you want this guy. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, and we talked. We had a, a meeting, and, and then I was just lucky enough that they said, yeah, you know, if you want to do it, we'll have you. And the guy who ran Fox at the time, Bill Mechanic, was not on board, right? Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he subsequently has admitted that he was wrong, but it sounds like he really opposed this. Yeah, I mean, I was not that aware of all the sort of 
ins and outs of it when right. it was happening as right. an actor i was just sort of like my agent said hey Farrelly's might want you for this thing and then i remember him saying oh, like we're having a little issue with the studio <laughs> but you know that's that's again that's it's just business, part of the business yeah. you know how early on did it become clear that this movie was going to be something special i think was it even while it was in production that you started to see some footage yeah there was i remember we were in miami the shoot was really fun we were on location in miami and you know my first time working with those guys and they just had so much fun doing the movie and about uh, i don't know maybe like 3 or 4 weeks into shooting I think we'd been up in Rhode Island for a little bit too. Now we're down in Miami, and they called me into their trailer to show me the first like ten minutes of the movie they cut together, and it was it was just so ridiculous. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this, maybe this will work. I don't know. But uh, again, like it was one of those things. Like I just sort of had to kind of go with the flow on it, right? Um, and had a great time. And then really wasn't until the movie, I think came out and I, it was the first time that I'd ever been a part of anything, either director or actor, where people just kept on coming up and going, oh my God, that movie's so funny. That's so funny. That's so funny. And I was right. like, oh, cool. <laughs> I just want to quickly interject just because I never thought I'd get the chance to tell you this, but so I'm in my 30s. I was unable to go to see it in the U.S. because it was it's art, right? right? So I was just shy of being able to go and see it at that time that it opened. But my mom is from South Africa. So we were going for the Christmas New Year break to South Africa where I think they don't enforce that. So on New Year's Day, 1999, we go to the mall in the harbor in Cape Town and the rest of my family wanted to go shopping, and I guess maybe they'd seen it and whatever. So they say, what can go wrong? We're putting whatever, 13-year-old kid. We'll put him in the movie, and we'll come back at the time the movie lets out, and we'll, we'll take you from there. And in the movie, Midway, my feet, I don't even think, could touch the ground. And in the middle of the movie, everybody starts screaming and running out of the theater. And I had no idea what had happened. And then I see stretchers going by and all sorts of stuff. I'm just following out the crowd. And I, I'm by myself in Cape Town, South Africa, watching There's Something About Mary. And it turns out that a car bomb had gone off outside of the movie theater, right outside. Few people had been injured. I think it was, I don't know if it was an Islamist extremist group. And this car bomb had gone off. And I, how am I going to find my family? And so in the middle of the movie, it was for, for a while, I didn't know, you know, I didn't get to see the end of something about Mary because of this freaking car bomb, which it was an insane oh situation. God. So an insane movie interrupted by an insane situation. I was so pissed because I had been so excited to finally see it. But anyway, I just, it did was you, the did, weirdest thing. Did you ever see the end? Of course. I I've seen it many times. <laughs> but, but I mean, like, you couldn't make it up, for, especially for... Crazy. Yeah, it was definitely one of those movies, I think, also, that uh, it was fun to see in the theater. It was like, to hear, oh, you know, people oh, laughing totally. yeah, when, if there wasn't a so, car wasn't bomb a going bomb. on. <laughs> well, and I mentioned the thing about not being able to touch the ground. you 13 years old, so I'm sure it was... Some of it may have gone yeah. over my head. But, okay, the two scenes, you know, have to just ask you just right. quickly, any recollections? Let's start with the zipper. Did you ever dream it would play as, like, some people think it's no, the funniest it was, scene ever. I mean... It was one again, you know, what I was saying before, like in terms of the Farrelly style, I was always questioning the logic of scenes. <laughs> so I'm in the bathroom and there's like a window in the bathroom and <laughs> and like, you know, characters are like showing up, right? Popping in the window and and I'm just going, guys, is this real? Like, does this feel real enough? Because <laughs> it's almost like a laughing sketch right. or something. Right. And then they had the giant prosthetic zipper, right? For the close up. And it was like five times normal size. And they had it laying on the, the set there. And I was like, oh, my God, you guys aren't really going to 
shoot that, are you? I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're going to shoot it. I don't know if we'll use it or not, but we're going to shoot it. And to me, that's like one of the great lessons in comedy is that right. scene in terms of where the reveal is of right. that shot. Right. Because it goes so deep into the scene where you're not seeing anything that when they finally show it, the audience is just so surprised <laughs> and the, the buildup is so much. But I remember, yeah, questioning the logic of right. that one and thinking, oh, this maybe is this too hokey or whatever. It's like, <laughs> and then the other one, hair gel. Yeah, hair gel. Again, the logic police came out. <laughs> like a little uh, serious uh, little meeting with Bobby and Pierre. It's like, okay, so if this is like on my ear, right. right? How am I not feeling this on my ear? Right. I really think we need to have a scene where we set up that somehow Ted lost the feeling, like the nerve <laughs> sensations in his, his earlobe, like he had an accident when he was a kid or something. There's no way the audience is going to buy this. <laughs> And they're just sort of like nodding, like, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll think about that. Yeah, that's a good idea, man. <laughs> and it was at that moment that you knew 20 years later, Peter Farrelly's going to direct the movie that wins the Best Picture Oscar. Of course, of course. <laughs> and well-deserved. Right. Okay, so what do you remember of opening weekend? Because I would imagine that pretty quickly that movie changed your day-to-day -day life. I mean, what I remember is not as much what the box office was at the beginning or anything, but just that people were, you know, friends were coming up to me and saying, oh, my God, that movie's so funny. And then it was, like, actually the first time. And people were saying to me, I knew you were someday you were going to be in a movie that was a hit, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and this was after I'd been working for years, right. you know, and thinking that things were going great. I really felt like my career was, it was. I was so having coming a out great of the woodwork now. But, yeah. like, it was the first time I was ever in a movie that made money. And... That was an interesting experience because it really does change things for you as an actor, not necessarily for the better, because I think, you know, up to that point, I really was happy just sort of like, going, oh, you do this movie, you direct that movie, you do a little part in this movie. You know, as long as you just keep it going, I was having fun. And then all of a sudden it was another world of like you're in, you know, box office and all that well, stuff. Well, that's exactly what I want to ask you about, yeah. because now every time... You First of all, I imagine it might limit the things in some ways that if you want to do something that's a little more dramatic or you want to do whatever. For a while, it might have been hard to break out of this idea of what people now thought of you as. But also, whatever you do, there's going to be these expectations that now come with it that you better be able to open the movie and blah, blah, blah. Was that the way immediately with future projects after that, that was the new reality? Yeah. And it was definitely something I wasn't used to and I didn't really... I don't think I knew how to navigate it because it was all of a sudden the people were bringing movies to me and saying, like, hey, they'll do this movie if you'll say yes to it. You know, and again, I grew up in show business. Yeah. I, I, it's not like I don't know about right. how it all works, but when you're in that position for the first time, it's a strange thing because you, you do have the choice. And I think as actors, as you go through your career, just taking parts, if you have an opportunity to do something you think is could be good, or sometimes you just take it because it's what's there, because you need to work. What was the first movie after Something About Mary? I think Mystery Men. Yeah. And then, I guess, not that long after Keeping the Faith, which... Is yeah, there were, it wasn't a string of hits. <laughs> well, I loved. I think keeping. But the I had. Great. I mean, yeah. but it was. You know, it was. It was interesting because I think I, I had the opportunities to do these different kinds of movies as an actor, and it was kind of fun because, like, oh, I could. You know, Ed Norton wants to do a movie, and this is interesting. And mm -hmm. you know, Mystery Men was fun because it was like, oh, I could do you know Janine and right. Hank Azaria, and like they're doing this big thing, and you know definitely pre-superhero world. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the opportunities were there. And then there was also then the sort of like, oh, and then the movie comes out, and how does it do? And 
do I care about that and all that stuff. You well, know? the assumption that some people might make is that, all right, now you've done something about Mary, you can do whatever you want. Why don't you right now do what makes Sammy run? But it doesn't really work like that, right? Well, no, I mean, it's all, it's all choice. You know, we, you're, you're given all these choices. And uh, for me at that time, I was interested. I, I think what makes Sammy run is a unique one because it's always been a very complicated book to turn into a movie for because a lot of it reasons. craps on Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. And I think, uh, and, and who the main character is. But I think it's, uh, so I think that kind of lives in its own world. But yeah, you know, you do have the choice to do whatever you want to do. And for me at that time, it was, it was fun to think of, at least in theory, of being, oh, I can do comedy movies right. and, and be a, a comedy actor. Well, the next big one after Something About Mary would, I think, be Meet the Parents, like just... Mm-hmm. Two years later, in case anyone needs a reminder, Greg Gay Fokker, uh, and for Jay Roach, another interesting quote that I came across, quote, I did it to see whether I could play a Mary, as in something about Mary, kind of character, which I already knew how to do, but not do it the same, close quote. So what was the variation here with, with <laughs> Meet um, the Parents? Gosh, that's an interesting quote. I, you know, I think, honestly, I, for me, taking that part was the excitement of being able to do what seemed like, I thought it was a really funny script and to work with Robert De Niro. Yeah. And when Jay Roach said, hey, we're, you know, Bob thinks he'd like to do this with you, it was sort of like, just, I couldn't really process it. Right. And it just seemed like it could be a funny movie. You know? Some of that in that movie really feels, feels improvised, like milking cats and stuff. Was, was there a lot of improv on that movie? I don't think an inordinate amount. I yeah. think, uh, you know, we had John Hamburg came on in the movie and rewrote a lot of it. Mm-hmm. But the original script was really funny, too. And on set, I think it was kind of, you know, is the kind of improv where just in the moment you're working with an actor and you're across from them and you're just playing around with ideas and but not having to totally invent the scene or, or even rewrite the scene. Mm-hmm. So I don't even remember what was, you know written or not written right. in those scenes, but it was all pretty much, you know, Jay's a pretty scientific director when it comes to that stuff, and I think he really always made room as part of his equation for improvisation, but uh, was never relying on it totally. And what and what is it like to work with De Niro? I mean, he's intimidating, um, I bet. Well, for me at the time, it was, uh, it never, never has really changed, because he's always <laughs> Robert De Niro. Right. But at the time, it was, it was, really appropriate for the relationship that we had in the movie. exactly. And so it it wasn't really that much about having to act uh, as opposed to just sort of be there in the scene with him. And I felt nervous. (laughs) I felt uh, (laughs) um, I wanted to do well for him, you know, which is everything that Greg is going through. Yes. It was just, I just remember it being so much fun. It being so much fun to, and every day to be able to, go to the set and to, you know, to do a scene with him. After that, you are directing again a movie that you starred in that is, of course, Zoolander. Derek Zoolander, I think people may not realize, was a character that you had created years earlier when you were hosting, was it for VH1, I think, like Fashion Awards or something, right? Yeah, I wasn't even hosting. I was just uh, doing these, there were these little shorts that they were doing in between segments of different characters in the fashion world, like a photographer, right. uh, stylist, male model, and Drake Sather, who was writing on the show, and the, uh, who was a very, very funny stand-up comedian, had written this bit for uh, Derek Zoolander. And uh, so we did it one year, and then we did it the next year. Right. 
And Mike DeLuca actually at New Line at the time, he was running New Line yeah. at the time, had said to me, hey, you know, that, that Zoolander character is really funny. You should do a movie. And then I was like, oh, cool. Are you, let's do it at New Line. And then he said, well, we can't do it at New Line because Paramount owns the VH1 Fashion Awards owned by the Viacom or whatever. Right, right. So we did it at Paramount. And then and luckily uh, Sherry Lansing wanted to make it. And, you know, it was, a, it was a long road with that. that. That was a few years getting that to the And was the, was the face, the Zoolander face, always a part of it? Or did that come along after the VH1 years. No, that was, I think that was part of the yeah. original short, you yeah. know, I think it was. <laughs> and you've said, you've said it was like the the actual origin of it is pretty funny, right? I mean, you. I mean, I think, yeah, for me, it came out of me just like looking in the mirror when I brush my hair or thinking what, thinking what I thought somehow looked good right. in right. the mirror, which ended up to be ridiculous, <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> so that movie had a, had its own trials in the making and then the release, right? Because I think it was one where you even had to like pay out of your own pocket to finish the movie, right? Because it was a it was a challenging shoot. Yeah, I think as I would do, I get really invested in making the movie and yeah. kind of do whatever I felt it took to get get it to be the best it could be. I think uh, at that point in my life, I was I really you know probably got too intense about it. Looking back, you know, because at the end of the day, it's just a movie. But I, I think, yeah, there was a point in time where that happened. And, you know, again, f- looking at it in in retrospect, there are budgets. Movies have budgets because there's like a formula that, you know, they have to make a certain amount of money to mm-hmm. make their money back. And, and so the studio wasn't being, I, I don't think they were being out of line right. now. But, you know, back then I was like, this is, you know. <laughs> Assholes. Yeah, I mean, like Apocalypse Now or right, something. Right, right, um, right. So... I think, yeah, that was at that time in my life, that's where I was at. Well, the other thing that happened, which was terrible, was that 9 11 happened 17 days before the movie opened, which I don't know how much of a mood people were in to, to laugh at the time. So I don't, if I remember correctly, it wasn't like a, everyone now, it feels like everyone knows Zoolander, everyone's seen it, everyone loves it. But at the time, I don't think it opened particularly strongly, right? Yeah, no, I think it opened number two yeah. um, to the Michael Douglas movie. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what I remember was just how how bad it felt. It all felt mm-hmm. at the time because there was, you know, no precedent for it in terms of what was going on. There was no precedent to how to react to that as somebody who had some a movie in the marketplace. Like, what what do we do? Right. And conversations with the studio. Do we even release it? You know, it was uh, it was it was not fun because. We all were sort of coping on, you know, on a peripheral way, let alone the people who actually were directly affected mm-hmm. by it. But just like on the outside of it, it was like, oh, is, you know, is this right? I had to go do interviews. Mm-hmm. To, I remember just being questioned on the Today Show whether or not it was right to put a comedy out and thinking, oh, wait, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, and, and there was the World Trade Center that was in it. And, and do we keep the World Trade Center in it or not, and we ended up taking it out, which I regretted. Well, I, I, I always wondered, what did it, who does, who's helped by cutting, because you guys weren't the only movie that did I think Spider-Man, a bunch of movies yeah. cut it out, and I just never really it understood. Was, I think it was people not knowing what to do, yeah, not knowing yeah. how to react to it, and again, in retrospect, I think we made sure in the last DVD issue mm-hmm. that, that it's, they were put back mm-hmm. in, but it was, the, it was the wrong decision, and but everybody was just confused yeah. and not knowing what was right. Just one lighter Zoolander-related thing. There are a lot of celebrity cameos in that movie. One of them is Donald Trump. What was he like to deal with? 
<laughs> we uh, so we had a camera out front at the at the VH1 Fashion Awards the year we were shooting. So that was just all people who were coming in. Okay. Um, and uh, he and Melania, I think, were coming in. And so you know, we said, "Hey, can you say something about Derek Zoolander?" And he, you know, he was fine. <laughs> um, I wish he stuck to acting. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Royal Tenenbaums was also that year, later that year in December. Was that your? That was the one time you've you've worked with Wes Anderson. Yeah. Do yeah. you your your senses of humor? Do, do they really do they align? I mean, that was an interesting one, and I wonder what you know is it. He tends to work over and over with the same people, or yeah. would you want to work? To, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> What's going on there? What's going on there? Um, I remain available for yeah. Wes. I love Wes. He's yeah. yes, I think he's a iconic genius filmmaker who just has like such a unique vision and he's a really sweet guy and I, I've you know there was one project we almost did yeah. about 10 years ago I don't know man I would I think he's amazing yeah I don't know how many people have had a year like your 2004 where five movies which collectively grossed more than a billion dollars worldwide along came Polly dodgeball meet the fuckers Envy and Starsky and Hutch. I think Envy was responsible about fifty dollars of that. <laughs> of that <billion>. <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, just a couple of quick ones here. You did say around that time, quote, that thing that I suddenly became known for, manchild, humiliations, broad physical comedy, was never my goal. It never excited me. So close quote. So I guess my question is, because that there were certainly within those movies some of those elements that you described in that quote. I mean, I think about Along Came Polly where you uh, crash into the sweaty fat man's stomach, which I thought was hilarious. I think about Dodgeball, some of the stuff, uh, Rip Torn just just died this week. Really stuff that audiences couldn't get enough of, but it sounds like you yourself, in a way, were almost begrudging about, in your own mind, about doing that tone of comedy. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I was wrestling with it for yeah. sure because I, you know, I didn't even realize that was all the same year. But like that at that time, there was, I mean, there was a lot of stuff out there, yeah. and it was a lot of feedback coming back in, and people were writing some articles about it, and and all of a sudden it was a, th- a thing, you know, that that you're talking mm-hmm. about, you know, that specific sort of prototype or something, and uh, it was or arch- archetype or yeah, yeah. I don't know what, <laughs> but it was something that was that was I didn't right. feel that great about Mm -hmm. at the time and it was a lot and again with time now looking back at it it's it's what it was I'm very happy because people still still come up to me to this day about those movies maybe not envy (laughs) 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 but um you know I have an appreciation for the laughs that that, you know that brought people but at the time I was definitely wrestling with it it was sort of like for someone that hears this and says Who's making Ben Stiller do those movies if he doesn't want to do them? Is it, again, because of the sort of the machinery of well, Hollywood? Yeah, the- I don't think I didn't want to do them. I think what it was was that I wasn't prepared for them to have as much of, a, I guess, an impact that they would then there would then be this sort of, not backlash, but sort of like, you know, kind of like people saying, oh, that's what this that's guy true. is, you know? Because I, I had no idea that they would do as well as they would do to create that much of a uh, way that people would perceive, you know, what I was doing. Right. But that's like, you know, 
that's not a bad problem to have in your life, but when you're going through it at the time, it's a little bit sort of, it's, uh, I I was having trouble navigating it, Mm -hmm. you know, but I, I don't regret doing those movies. And I think, um, looking back, it's, you know, you make the decisions that you make at the time. It's, you do the best you can at the time. And yeah. Well, after that period that we're talking about there, I guess you could almost call there, there another chapter would be the family franchise stuff that happened with the Madagascar, first Madagascar movie in 2005, first night at the museum movie in 2006. I don't know how much little kids would have known about you prior to those. So that introduced a whole new audience. But I think like a, it seems like a turning point would be in 2008 with Tropic Thunder, where again, you're directing, you are in the movie and it seems from everything I've read from other people that worked with you on that and everything, that was like, that was all in major undertaking, a stressful thing to, to make, even if it's a mocking the war movie genre and movie stars and all that, you still had to make a movie that looked like that. So that was, what, how would you describe that one and that whole experience? I, it's one of my favorite experiences ever yeah. making that movie. I mean, yes, there was a lot of pressure because it was a big budget movie and at that time, be able to make a movie on that scale that was a comedy, I mean, that just would not happen anymore, maybe due to this. It was the <laughs> most expensive R-rated movie ever, right? Like 90 million <laughs> bucks. Yeah, and not the most profitable, but uh, <laughs> I think it eventually made its money back. Yeah, you know, yeah, it did okay, but it was, that that kind of stress that comes with that, that kind of budget is a unique thing. That being said, I also had the best time ever making that movie because it was an idea that Justin Thoreau and I had had for like eight or nine years and one of those things we never thought we'd actually get to do. And the cast was so amazing and the vibe on the set and the experience of making it was, I I, I look back on that and I'm I'm really, you know, really happy with the movie. So yeah, it was kind of like everything. It was kind of everything. It was like the most pressure, the most fun, you know, all of it. It plays on a few different levels. It plays, you know, just very funny, but also I think has some social commentary. And I wonder though, you know, one thing that people talk about a lot, whether it's Bill Maher or other people are always saying, I think Jerry Seinfeld, political correctness in recent years has even just in the, let's say 11 years since then has been noticeably growing. Do you think that even 11 years later, even with the context of the way in which you guys had let's say the blackface or the never go full retard or whatever, could that movie even get made today? I I don't think it would have gotten made today for sure. Uh, I don't think it would have gotten out of that, that sort of uh, stage of people saying, I don't know if the audience is going to accept this or there's just going to be too much that we have to deal with. And is this right or not? I mean, it's a totally different world today. And um, does that trouble you as somebody who lives in the world of comedy? You know what? It's it's a confusing time to live in because there's always something that's going to make you feel old and out of it, (laughs) and you you know, and and when it's explained to you, you're like, yes, you're right, you're totally right. Mm -hmm. But in terms of comedy, if you can't push the edges and and the bounds of it, then you're you're not going to be able to be funny, and it's really really hard. I mean, even at that time, we had to deal with backlash from the simple Jack character. You know, it's that question of what is your intention when you're telling the joke? What, you know, what are you trying to say? And if you're clear about that, then I feel you're, you know, you should go forward and do it. And you have to be able to take chances. So, yeah, it's a totally uh, a different time. And I, I, I think uh, we wouldn't have been able to make the movie 
now, or at least it would have been tougher. I don't. It was a tough movie to make at the time, even. And Steven Spielberg is the one who really got it made. It really? Was, yeah. It was oh. DreamWorks. Well, it was DreamWorks. Oh, DreamWorks. Yeah. And Steven and Stacy Snyder had read the script, and you know, I think Steven got what it was. But I don't think there were a lot of studios that would have been dying to make that movie. And yeah, we dealt with backlash when it came out. It wasn't coming from where I thought it would be coming from, but it was, you know, that, and you have to be able to make fun of that stuff too, I think. Yeah. I, th- I think we, you know, otherwise it, it's just, it, it's impossible to like have a sense of humor about life. At the same time, you don't want to do cruel jokes and you don't want something to be misinterpreted. And so, yeah. And Downey yeah. Winds, winds up at the Oscars. <laughs> yeah, he does. And and as he said, when he when he read the script, he told me, he said, I think I'm either going to go to hell for playing this role or I'm going to win an Oscar. And he ended up getting nominated. <laughs> Okay, so the next thing that happened is that you embarked on what's now, I I guess, become like one of the more frequent collaborations of your career with Noah Baumbach, because starting with Greenberg, sort of a misanthropic character, uh, Roger Greenberg, the title character, who's just out of a psych ward in New York, now staying at his brother's place in L.A., this is not commercial in the way that these other movies we've recently been talking about were. on It's not on paper an easy sell. It was not going to get made probably without you. And it probably wasn't even going to get made with you, from what I understand, <laughs> until you agreed to do another, I think it was Meet the Fockers. So... <laughs> Which would have been for, so Focus was doing Greenberg, which is a division, Focus is under Universal, which is doing, anyway, um, (laughs) why was it so important to you to play a character like this? Was it just the fact that it was so different from anything else you'd done? I mean, it was Noah. It was, you know, a filmmaker that I respected and I thought was really talented and... I don't know, I thought it was a brave movie and that he was trying to tell a story about a character that wasn't necessarily the most accessible or likable. But, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't have said no. I would have said yes. If Noah was offering me anything, I would have said yes to it, even at that time before I knew him, because I was a fan of his. From, and, like, what, Squid and the Whale? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, you know, and he goes back to, like, kicking and screaming, yeah, too. Right, so right. he, you know, we were sort of, you know, knew each other a little bit and, and knew him through Wes a little bit. Mm-hmm. And... I just was excited to be able to work with him and Harris Savitas was shooting the movie and just to be in his world. And it was at a time, where, you know, what he was saying about Los Angeles, too, because mm-hmm. there's something about I think it's a great L.A. movie. And it was a time when I was just moving out of L.A. and I actually lived on the same block that he was that we were filming the movie on, too. And it was all sort of like it just felt very connected and organic. And I never thought about the character in terms of like being, oh, this is like I want to play this kind of character. Mm -hmm. I just thought, oh, this is a really interesting, well-written character that I, I could I found a connection to not direct connections that were literal in the script, but other ones and then have a chance to work with him. And how did it feel for probably the first time in, I don't know, like 20 years to be able to do a movie without the pressure of having to open it in a big way. Like, this yeah. movie was not being made because somebody was going to be counting opening weekend receipts. Yes. I don't... I, don't, <laughs> I mean, we could talk about those receipts yeah. on that one. Um, <laughs> um, but... Does it allow you to just sort of breathe and just do better work? Yeah. I mean, I've always loved independent movies, and, and you know, the idea of doing that kind of work is something I've always wanted to do. I just made a lot more of the other kinds of movies. I think, you know, when you're working in that sort of environment, it's it's just a whole different thing. And yeah, it was definitely, I loved the experience. It was really freeing. And Yeah. And then Reunited, 
four years later on While We're Young, which is, I think, one of the funniest. I just get such a kick out of that one. And then also just two years ago, the Meyerowitz stories, smaller part, but very memorable. And so those, you know, it seems like you and Noah will continue to probably make movies together. Yeah, um, if he calls, I'll, yeah. I'll answer the phone. Um, yeah, um, <laughs> he's, but, I mean, he's you know, I think he's such a great writer yeah. and director, and and he's so prolific, and he really makes very personal movies. And I actually saw his his next movie that's coming out. Oh, I heard it's supposed it, to be it's great. It's really amazing. It's yeah. a, a beautiful, beautiful. I think his most accessible movie. Really? Too, yeah. Okay. Well, the next thing that I've got to ask about because I I know it took a lot out of you. I remember interviewing you at the time it was being rolled out after years of wanting to make it and then years of working on it and just a, a huge undertaking that other people had tried and failed to adapt for for years since it was originally on the on the screen in the 40s was The Secret Life of Walter Mitty from a James Thurber short story. Your fifth features director, you're starring in it, this ordinary man with an extraordinary imagination all kinds of visual effects, just a massive, massive undertaking. Why did you want to do it so much, and what was the greatest challenge in executing it? Well, I wanted to do it because of Steve Conrad's script. Steve wrote this really beautiful reimagining of the idea. You know, it's a short story that it is really just its own thing, and and Steve just took the idea and and wrote basically an original movie, and I've always been a fan of his, and I met with him. We talked about it. I thought it was a really, I don't know. I just thought it was a very, even though it was a big movie, I thought it was a small movie, and it was about a very simple thing, and it was more than just about someone not being able to. It was more than about just being about a daydreamer. It's about somebody who really couldn't connect in in life with um, what was going on in the moment. And so I, I was excited to to try to make that movie with him as a partner and because uh, I think he has such a unique voice. And so, you know, and then the obviously the, the aspects of it that were bigger were sort of challenging and, and exciting. And it was a very positive experience making that movie. I think everybody who was involved in it was very connected to, to making it, even though it was a big movie. And... If you had it to do all over again, would you get I mean, was it more than you realized you were signing up for originally? The whole nature of getting involved with VFX and all the things that came with it that I don't know how much you'd had to deal with before that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it was definitely challenging. I think I learned a lot about, about that stuff on the movie. I think what was more challenging than anything was trying to integrate those big fantasy sequences and the other story and trying to bring them together. And that's what uh, I think was the, the biggest challenge of it for me. But uh, I say it wasn't a hard movie in that it was like there were clashes that were happening with the studio. Or anything. Everybody was really supportive of it. It just was uh, a uniquely specific thing. Yeah. yeah. You, I think shortly after that movie came out, had a bit of a health scare, right? How frightening is something like that? Did it interrupt your, did you put things on hold when, I, I guess it was prostate cancer, right? Yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing when you get cancer, it's scary. I bet. I bet. <laughs> it's scary and you put everything on hold. Yeah. And it's that moment in time where you go, oh my God, there's like nothing if I'm not around. Yeah. And how do I go forward with that? And I was, uh, 
really, really fortunate in terms of my diagnosis and the fact that I was diagnosed early enough that I could do something about it. But the, yeah, the experience of, of uh, getting diagnosed for anybody and uh, many, many people in the world uh, go through it every day is really, really scary. And you think you're, are you a different person from having gone through that experience? Sure. I think anybody is going to be a different person when they're affected by any disease in a major way. Mm -hmm. And, uh, then what you sort of take away from it as you go forward in life, because, you know, once you go forward, I think part of it is with cancer, first of all, you know, you go forward and you're always aware that it could come back. So there's always that aspect to it. I find with myself and other people I know have gone through it, you, you want to look forward and you don't want to look back. So in a way, you try to kind of put it in the rearview mirror right. and not think about it. But when you're going through it and when you get that first test back where you, you know, you're all clear, there's, there's no better feeling in the world. And how long you can hang on to that in mm -hmm. life is sometimes a question. I found I let it go for a while and then come back to it mm -hmm. and sometimes have to be reminded of it. But, you know, I feel there's not a day that goes by that I'm not aware of what I went through because, you know, these... These things take their their toll on you too. I bet. And you, um, you know, young kids and you yeah, know. yeah. But you know what? I was really, really lucky. Mm -hmm. And there's so many people who have a more difficult road. I was able to have access to good health care, and you know, I was just I was just so fortunate and a great doctor. But yeah, this it's just it's you know it's the reality of life. Yeah. yeah. Well, this brings us to what I I think, and I I don't I know I'm not alone based on. I don't know if you read reviews and stuff, but since that scary moment, you've now done some of the best work of your career, and it's doing what you set out in some ways to do before you got, I don't know if sidetrack's the right word, but you know, I don't think you ever imagined that you were, you never, it was never on the agenda to be the comedic movie star who's opening movies every weekend. What it, ultimately, if you were probably had a gun to your head, you would have chosen to be a director and and do things that you're really passionate about, which sounds like Escape at Danamora was. I mean, to do eight hours, I think, of uh, of a limited series, something you a format you'd never had to never worked in before. Was it the realization of sort of what you what you'd originally set out to do? Yeah, it was a great experience, and I think for me the probably the biggest realization was how much I enjoyed directing and not acting mm -hmm. at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I think that was really freeing for me. And the first day of shooting, I, I, I just had this feeling inside like, oh, this is really what I should be doing and that I should not be trying to do both things at the same time. I still love acting, but, and then not having the pressure of it being a comedy, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's a whole different world. I mean, yeah, I, I, I had one of the best experiences I've ever had working on it. So this is, you know, dealing with an incident that I believe was 2015. Mm -hmm. And so I imagine like the rest of us, you probably caught wind of it when it happened. But in terms of making it into something for the screen, was it was it something that that originated with you saying this is the story that I want to do or somebody came and said Ben Stiller is the right guy for this because if it's the latter that's you know an interest that took some imagination this was not like anything you directed before right yes yeah I, I was lucky enough to get a call from um, Michael Tolkien and Brian Zurif and Brett Johnson and Brett and Michael had written a script 
and had this idea to do the story. I don't I don't know how it got to me. <laughs> I think maybe it got mixed up in right. a, an outbox somehow. Right. <laughs> but uh, I, I was fortunate enough to get the call from them, you know, and, and it was at a time when I think uh, I really was you know, wanting to, to do that. To, and, to, and the timing, I think, was a big part of it for me. And the fact that it was straight drama was not frightening to you at all? I mean, even when you'd done so much sure. in comics? Yeah, yeah, sure, it was scary. Yeah. I mean, but, but I, I, I mean, just whether or not people would accept that I could do that, I guess, you know, it was not something I thought about a lot. But I think as we went through the process, I, I felt really connected to it but I was sort of reminded along the way at certain points like oh I'm you know people would be like oh it's weird you're doing this or wow it's great you're doing this or you know that's different for you and in my mind I hadn't really thought of it that way mm -hmm. because I've always loved directing and yeah. in my head I was like yeah I'm, I'm gonna make something like this and I just never had done it yeah and then the actual process in of doing it you know felt really felt really good and really natural but along the way there are moments where to have these little sort of like oh I, I hope that this actually works <laughs> <laughs> you know the, it, it's something about you know when you're doing a comedy where you know you you know if they're laughing it's working and with something like this and a drama it's really much more uh, subjective yeah and it was the first time I really had ever directed anything where there wasn't a test screening process yeah at all and when you signed up for this was it always going to be a limited series or was there any way it could have been a feature film? No, I, I think it was always going to be that. And uh, it was just a question of how many episodes and the story really felt like it could support that. And, you know, this isn't a big issue story. You know, this isn't um, something that's uh, in the news. It wasn't, in, it was in the news for a moment, right? But it's not based in anything other than the story of, of three people who really had these kind of tough lives and the experience that they went through trying to somehow make their lives better. <laughs> yeah. It just in a, in a really, you know, misguided way. And I think that's to me what I what I was most drawn to in the the prison escape aspect of it also, but the idea that what is the human interaction that happens between people who are looked at as bad people and for good reasons a lot of the time, but they're also human beings. And I think finding that humanity in the story and what the motivations were and what was really going on between these people to make this happen was the most interesting thing to me about it. And so what sort of a time frame were you working with in terms of prepping? I mean, you had to, there's a lot of stuff that's out there, I know, in terms of an IG report and, and stuff like that. Some of the people are still around. What did you read? Who did you talk to? And how did you convince this actual Danamora prison to allow you to work on their, you know, to cooperate with you in, in telling a story that's got to be the thing they least want to be known for? <laughs> <laughs> yes. The New York State Department of Corrections was not thrilled to have this uh, made, I think, uh, for a long time, we didn't get any cooperation from them, understandably. So Brett and Michael had written these two scripts that they sent to me that were based on sort of their imagination of what they thought would have happened, but they didn't know because they didn't have that much research, and they were really well written. And I struggled with it for a long time and finally said no because I felt like for, for myself to understand how to make it, I had to understand what really happened because that was what interested me the most. What are the actual things that have to happen? for an escape like this to happen in this day and age. 
And then when the Inspector General report came out, I guess it was um, 2016, I think it was June of 2016, that's when I got on board because I thought, okay, here's a, 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 the perfect source material. It was this well-researched, really well-written report that Catherine Leahy Scott made, and it had all of the details, and the details were fascinating. Not only just the tools and, and the, the methods, but also the interactions between the people and the, and the corrections officers, and what was allowed and what wasn't allowed, what rules were broken, and the relationships. So from then on, we reached out to the inspector general, had a meeting at their office, and we broke out what the story uh, was going to be in terms of episodes. And the guys had you know started writing and we started just researching and going up there and talking to people, talking to people who lived in Danamora, going to the places where it all happened, just learning as much as we possibly mm -hmm. could. And there was a guy named Eric Jensen who had been in Clinton, who'd spent time in the tailor shop, and he uh, became one of our technical advisors. And he introduced me to another person who'd been on the same cell block as Richard Matt. And Richard Matt had given him his radio the, the day that, the, the, before he escaped. Oh, really? And so he was in another facility in Mohawk in New York. And we went to talk to him and, and just you know got as many details as we could. But at a certain point, we were close to shooting. And this was in 2017, I guess. And it had been almost a, a year into the full-on prep and, and research, and we still didn't have the cooperation of the prison. Did you really actually think you would ever get it? Why would they cooperate? I didn't. I did not think we were going to get it because we'd been sort of stonewalled for a long time. And the biggest concern I had was like, okay, we're not going to get to shoot in there. We'll never get to go in there. But it's such a unique location, the way that uh, Clinton Correctional is laid out in the mountains and the Adirondacks and this very um, isolated area. And just the physical place is so hard to recreate. These these walls that are, this, so there's this one wall that just is up against the main highway and the yard, which is huge and almost like this sort of amphitheater. You know, it was just too expensive and too hard to recreate. And... I just wanted to be able to film outside of the the prison itself, just so we could have them, you know, be near the manhole where they mm -hmm. popped out of. And none of that was going to be able to happen if we didn't at least get the okay yeah. from the prison. And so we were about six or seven weeks out from shooting, and we didn't have a location. And I reached out to the governor of New York. <laughs> Wait, so you didn't have? What would you have done if you didn't get Danamora? I, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, we were I, we were looking at we had a prison in Pittsburgh that we shot a lot of the interiors in, mm -hmm. and but it wasn't the right setup, and it was like in the city, and we were exploring visual effects options of you know you know what you could do like of creating it, but the aesthetic that we were going for was such a gritty sort of realistic vibe that it it didn't feel I was really concerned we weren't going to be able to pull it off and. We would have had to just gone to another town, and it was all it was. It, it wasn't going well, and <laughs> and so so it was sort of like this hail mary where I just reached out to the governor's office. I knew somebody who knew okay. the, the mayor, who he said he knew somebody in their office. And this is Cuomo. Yes, right? yeah. And so he kind of made it happen. Yeah, so we got we got this meeting, and he got us in touch with uh, the Department of Corrections before the meeting, and his assistant and chief of staff, her name's Melissa DeRosa, she was really instrumental, and she got us on the phone, and we, and we told them what we wanted. You know, can we open up the manhole? Can we shoot outside the prison? Is there any way we could get maybe get a tour of the inside of the prison? 
and they came back to us and they said, yeah, you know what, we're going to let you shoot outside the prison and you can, we'll open up the manhole possibly for you and uh, we'll see if we can get you inside to have a tour. That's amazing. Yeah. And then I had this meeting with the governor and he was really interested in what we were doing. And, he, you know, he said, that's a crazy story, isn't it? And like, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, his visit the day that the escape happened was our only footage that we had of the inside of the place because he had a camera crew that came in with him. So anyway, so at the end of the meeting, he said, well, you know, it sounds great. And uh, is there anything we can do to help you? And <laughs> at this moment, I'm like, uh, yeah, well, you could... You, can we shoot inside yeah. the prison? <laughs> and so what? how much did you get to do? How much is actually inside the prison? Well, we only shot, it, it ended up that we, the biggest thing was that we shot for two days inside the prison, but it was on the yard. Yeah. Uh, and that was the biggest part of it. And then the other thing that was huge for us was that we could shoot the outside on the streets of them going in and out and going to work and coming out of work. Because they could have blocked that. Yeah, they could have yeah. totally blocked that. And also the manhole. They opened up the manhole. So That's awesome. That was really, uh, really important. You know, that was when sort of everything changed for us. And the biggest thing also was that we had the cooperation of the of the prison. So that yeah. we were able to go in, tour the cells, see the actual cells, see the actual catwalk. We couldn't take pictures. But Mark Ricker, our production designer, was taking notes and, and drawing sketches. Yeah, and we recreated that. He did an amazing job. And and then we had the, those technical advisors from the prison. So there's a um, person named Jim Facto who was amazing, who had been at Clinton for 30 years and was a captain there. And he was on the set every day and, and uh, really guided us. One of the most unbelievable things in this series is the, I think it's the opening of the fifth installment with like a nine-minute take that is following Paul Dano as he goes th- from the cell out through the manhole and then goes I think it goes back on that trip, but the, it's like a tracking shot that looks like one single shot. It's like the the most tour de force kind of I don't know if you call it filmmaking when it's on TV, but that's what I, you know what I mean. How did that one come together? Because that, as you're saying, you weren't in the actual escape route, so that had to all be created for this series. And how do you even capture that? Yeah, well, the inspiration for it was an actual GoPro video that the the investigators made, I think, a day or two after they escaped. So, and you can find it online where they put a GoPro on their head and, you know, like on a headband and went through Sweat Cell and basically talked as they went through the entire escape room and said, and then he went here and then he went down here and the guy crawls down the catwalk and then he goes through and into the pipe and out the pipe. <laughs> and it's a 17 minute video. And when we saw that, I thought, oh, this would be a, a great way to, and the fact that he also, he did that the night before they escaped and then he went back in, which was really interesting to yeah, me that he yeah. didn't just leave. So when we saw that video, I thought, okay, this would be a great way to to show what they've been doing for the first four episodes, because the first four episodes you see this, you know, chiseling and tunneling and cutting, and but you don't quite know the geography of it. And to realize that this was what he was doing every night and having to put the bricks back every night and it just, you know, go into the pipe and saw the pipe inside the pipe for four weeks. It was, you know, a way to show all of this and, and how it progressed. And then it sort of dictated what the whole episode was going to be. Oh, it's amazing. And you yeah. did speak with Sweat? Yeah, we went to see Sweat. Again, once we had the cooperation of the Department of Corrections, they facilitated that. And we went up to see him for about six hours and got a lot of interesting 
info from him. But did not speak to Tilly? Right. Can I just, just because I think it's funny, I yeah. think you'll get a kick out of this. Can I just quote something? So Tilly has been complaining to the press that she was not consulted. She told the New York Post, quote, I never had sex with them. Ben Stiller is a son of a bitch liar, just like the rest of the world. He doesn't care about the truth. All he cares about is making millions off of me. He's an idiot, close quote. Now, I don't know how she thinks you're making millions off of, of uh, a limited series for Showtime, but I want to give you a chance to respond to that because I think that you really did do your own. This is not like making up a, a scenario here. She, you, as you're saying, you had people in the prison, in the room that she oversaw, who are pretty clear about what happened, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think she also wrote the Cable Guy review for the New York <laughs> Times, too. <laughs> not that but, it still bothers me. But like, um, I mean, this is... No, she, uh, she was upset. Yeah, she was upset. <laughs> Look, I, I, we really made every effort to portray the reality of what happened in there. And from, from my experience of talking to Sweat, even, who also had his own version of what happened, mm-hmm. when you look at the evidence of what they were doing and the notes that were passed and what people saw and how they went into the room continually and all of it, and he was kicked out of the tailor shop for basically for going back there with her all the time and wrote 60 love notes I think and (laughs) made her the little pants and all sorts of things it's just obvious that there was something else going on there I think that's what the biggest you know problem she had with it and and obviously she's I you know look in my estimation Patricia Arquette portrayed a completely three-dimensional human being and gave her as as much vulnerability and accessibility as, as somebody could ask for, you know, and and humanity. But, um, yeah. yeah. Well, great, great, great performances by Paul Dano, Patricia Arquette, and Benicio Del Toro, who have all sort of sung your praises as a, as a director. And I think another testament to the whole enterprise is that people watch this and find themselves against their, against their better judgment, almost rooting for them to get away. Can you explain, is that just we empathize with the protagonist or, or is it just great acting or, or what would, how do you explain that? Well, I think we made every effort to n- not portray them as heroes because, and that's what episode six yeah. is about. It was really important. But I do think that just sort of the, the fact that you have, you have these actors who are giving them fullness and uh, and an accessibility, which is what they're trying to do without cheating, right. I think. You know, I think Benicio and Paul both were looking at who these guys really were and then trying to find the, the real person inside of there. But, you know, it's a prison break, and I think in that genre, people are always going to be rooting yeah. for, you know, to get out. Right. And that's part of the reality of being in prison, the fact that they were in this place called the Honor Block where they had all these special privileges. That was all based on the fact that they followed the rules in prison. And at that prison, at that time, if you did that and you didn't have any bad behavior on your record, you could get into the honor block, even if you were a murderer or a rapist or whatever. So that was probably not a good thing. (laughs) And that's what facilitated them being able to get out. So I think in a way, as an audience, you're watching these guys who would be who you would experience if you met them in prison. Like, oh, you know, Richard Matt seems like a really cool, right, you know, a right. little scary, but like, you know, kind of charismatic. And and David Sweat, same thing, you know, he's not trying to make any trouble, but mm-hmm. the fact is, this is what they did. So yeah. 
you know, that, that, that was, uh, I think, just inherently going to be part of it. And for us, we felt that's why we had to show yeah, that. Yeah, no, that's great. Last question is just there's been such a great response to this project and your work on it and all of that. I wonder, does this change things? Are you now pursuing getting opportunities to do things differently than you were before? Do you want, does it make you want to do things that you didn't think you would be able to do before? Just what's the, the future as far as you can see it right now? It's been great. It's, it has opened up, I guess, different uh, avenues as a director, which is really exciting and really fun to be talking to people about different kinds of projects and and writers especially. And uh, I would love to keep doing this and to keep directing. And I still want to act. <laughs> but uh, right now in, in my life, I, I find so much personal connection and fulfillment from working as a director and just, you know, I love doing it. I've always loved doing it. So I feel really uh, fortunate and grateful that I have those opportunities and I'm just, I'm enjoying that. It's really terrific. Yeah. And thank you so much for doing this. I Thanks, appreciate man. it. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in.